episode 46. Welcome to Vino 101. I'm Bill. Hello, everybody. It's Al. We're ready to talk about some wines and wine topics. <laughs> yes, for sure. All kinds of good info from the world of wine. Uh, so what do we uh, what, what do we got today? Um, let's talk a little bit. Well, let's talk a little bit about some um, wine education, some tasting education, as the case may be. Tasting's easy, man. You pour it in a glass and you just drink it. I mean, yes. it's so hard about that. Not, nothing. I mean, come on, nothing. Let's not to put too fine of a point on it, Bill. But, yeah. I mean, well, you know, there is, this, there is this idea that you might want to um, um, participate in the language of wine. And to do so, there is a protocol for tasting. Not my protocol. I'm all down with pour it in the glass and drink it. To some degree. I know a little bit of the chemistry, so now I know let some oxygen hit it to waken it up. But uh, the Wine Spectator has a Q&A section called Ask Dr. Vinny. Um, we've talked about some of his stuff before, or letters that were written to Dr. Vinny. And this week is, what do I, do I have to swirl champagne or um, sparkling wine to get the oxygen in it and release the flavors and dr vinnie says that's not true you don't need to swirl it the carbonation will take care of it for you um what do you say al do you agree uh well, <laughs> it, it depends on the glass that you have i think at the end of this he talks about the glasses and he says that uh, i mean it's a short it's just a couple paragraphs and he talks about um you know there's a big uh there's a big thing going on right now with, you know, what type of glass you put your sparkling wine in. Um, typically, you know, back in the day, I mean, I want to say like 30, 40 years ago, they had these, um, they had these, uh, what did they call them? I guess they were called uh, these broad, uh, I don't even know what you call those glasses. They're not, uh, I want to say tulips, but that's not what I'm looking for. But they were these shallow glasses that you see on the old uh, black and white films. That used to be, they had the super broad base and they were very shallow, and you know that's what you saw people toasting with. Then that went away, and then people were toasting with flutes. Do they which, look like uh, little wine decanters? Mm, Do they have a broad? Huh, that's weird. I've never noticed that. But go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, they look like. I, uh, I think they were originally modeled off after um, uh, Marie Antoinette's breast, that type of thing. You know, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a reference, man. <laughs> But that's gone because what happened is you pour the you pour the bubbly in there and then the bubbles would dissipate too quickly and before you know it your wine's flat. So they got rid of that and they said, Oh, let's go with these flutes. Flutes are great because the the, the wine looks great. The sparkling wine, the champagne, the bubbles going all the way up this long flute. It looks awesome. Problem is you can't really get the aromas of the wine because the, the the actual entrance for the for the, the it's so narrow so you can't even get your nose in there right so that went away and they said well you know maybe now the thing to do is uh tulips and it's the more standard thing a tulip is um it's a flute but it's elongated it's a little bit more um it's like a bulb at the very top almost like a um, tulip a rose tulip yep. and uh that was that's what's considered the optimum vessel to drink champagne out of these days I'm a little contrarian. I drink uh, bubbly out of uh, a standard uh, Burg Burgundy glass. 
which is uh, pretty odd, I know. Yeah. Don't but you have one not. of those like affixed to your body, though? One of those, <laughs> one of those burgundy glasses. I see you with those things all the time. Yeah. No, I'm yeah. just, I'm just saying. No, put yeah, all, put all my any type of liquid that I'm breaking in there. But no, really, you can get. I mean, if you really want to um, figure out what's going as far as the nose and the smells, and really assess the wine properly, uh, um, a, a bubbly wine, anyway, especially for like what I'm tasting, I always use like a big. I call you could call it like a burgundy or chardonnay glass, but a big glass, and I I get the full swirl going, and then that that way you know what's going on. But, you know, the whole idea behind having uh, champagne or having bubbly, it's always a festive thing. And, um, you, you know, looks are a big part of it. So I think flutes are the way to go. Yeah. So I looked up those classic champagne glasses. I see what you're talking about now. I did like that. That image just didn't pop in my head. But um, yeah. anyone that sees this, um, it's just like a bowl on top of a stem. Um, yeah. And. It's better than the Marie Antoinette uh, reference, then I guess. I like the Marie Antoinette reference. Actually, <laughs> that worked. Okay. That worked much better for me. Um, just saying. The um, a couple of other things. So I was teasing you about your Bordeaux glass, but um, all joking aside, a couple of things. People will dismiss if they haven't really had the experience or education this whole notion about drinking something out of a quote-unquote a proper glass and it does give the appearance of being a snob however i will tell you i have enough experience i i'm an expert drinker i have ten thousand hours of drinking uh in in my life um i've been doing it for a while um i've also had some really excellent people help me understand the differences and i will tell you unequivocally it makes a major difference once you start to understand and experience um, a, a beverage, what what container it's in when you drink it. Um, so if you are actually trying to understand what's going on in the glass or um, what the, the product itself, be it beer, be it wine, kind of any fermented thing, it putting it in the right vessel will help it. It will all uh, help you understand that. It will also, it's designed to be in those things so it will taste better. And then my little, you know, poke at Al in his Bordeaux glass, the thing I'd say is Al does a lot of this too. And he, the Bordeaux glass is like a tool for him. And so this has been my experience watching him taste. He knows really, he knows what that, he knows that tool really well. So when he puts something in it, he really understands um, the result of using it. So, um you know, I see him drink a lot of stuff out of that Bordeaux glass, but it, it's something he understands. And so, you know, if somebody puts it, don't, uh, all I'm saying is if you're a beginner at this, don't dismiss this idea about the vessel. Um, it may seem like a really snobby thing, but at the end of the day, it, it will, um, it'll make a difference. I mean, I, I got to the point where it's like, I don't care. Yeah. You can think I'm a snob, but my beer tastes better than yours does. Um, and I'm enjoying, and I'm enjoying it more because um, of what I've been taught. So that I, I think that's good. You know, it's good. It, it's good that these things kind of come up. Yeah, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly about the the value of a good glass. Um, it's 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 paramount, actually. Um, it's almost like I guess if I had to draw like a a, a, a parallel um, analogy, it would be like. Um, 
a really uh, well-crafted set of um, audio speakers, you know, that's a, um, can that's a really do, uh, uh, do justice to, you know, your input that you put into it. <laughs> for sure. For sure. No, I just asked my team. I'm laughing because I just asked my teenager to do something, and he did the exact opposite that I just asked him to do. Well, uh, are you surprised? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's, it's it's comical. It's comical. I just want to go so, out and yell at Liel at him to read his phone. <laughs> you could um, you could dive into the glass thing big time, and uh, I mean, there's a, there's this one uh, company that makes some uh, George Riedel of. Uh, a manufacturer of uh, glassware and i mean he he takes it to the the 1000th degree where he has designed a specific glass for sp- each specific type of varietal which is i you know i, I don't know if i can buy that <laughs> but well i, mean, I think the glass. yeah i think he's the um, a, go ahead i'm sorry to talk over you i you know when you go to a um you know, when you go to a winery and or a really high-end restaurant, that's the place you kind of expect, you know, I'm going to have this varietal and I get this special glass for it. There's there's probably a very small amount of glasses that you need in your home that can accommodate pretty much all different types of wine and beer, all types of different liquor and wine and beer. Um, you don't need a lot of glasses, a couple um, will get you around. So, um, and there are, you know, that Bordeaux glass that you use, that thing works for a lot of different varietals, in my opinion. Um, yeah, it does. I, I use that almost exclusively for, you know, just, you know, medium to full body reds. But I like the, <clears throat> I do like the burgundy glass. Uh, I really prefer it for the whites. And for some reason, I don't know, that standard Bordeaux glass that you get, which is a little bit smaller. Um, I like that for, I really like that for white wines. Yeah. And I'll talk a little bit about beer here. So you can use a Bordeaux glass for a nice IPA. If you put Pliny the Elder in that Bordeaux glass, it's going to taste as good as if you would put it into a Bordeaux, into a beer glass. It sort of has a, almost like a circle at the top. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's kind of concentrating the flavors there. Um, Pilsners, I actually drink my Pilsners out of a tumbler, a straight tumbler. I find that it it concentrates the flavors and the aromas the right way. Um, it just tastes completely different than if you're in a pint glass. It's almost like a flute. You've seen yeah. those, um, and so I've you know, and similarly, the pint glasses that you get in many restaurants where you know it's almost shaped like a like a horn. It's just a circle, um, almost like a flute. Um, certain beers taste better and taste differently if you con- if you put them in different glasses so like that ale glass that you see pilsners will be in there too it'll make a difference if you go to germany you'll see a lot of different glassware for beers too you know everything from the stein to the um you know like the um almost like a tulip glass for the um beers that are aged or possibly even um higher alcohol of course, all this would be um, would really be a mute point if uh, you didn't store your wine in the in the proper area, Bill. Yeah. And uh, yeah. What, what I mean by that is, if you uh, if you for some reason decided to do some offsite storage because uh, you know maybe you're a little cramped in the in the in the homestead, 
um, you really got to be careful. And um, Blake Gray uh, brings up a nice little article talking about uh, a Baltimore uh, businessman that, uh, well, for lack of a better word, he was storing wines for customers. Um, I, I love the name of his storage company, Safe Harbor Wine Storage. Um, you know, he would, he would safely uh, store the wine for people that were collecting wines. And then, um, you know, in exchange for storing their wines, he would accept money from them. And uh, sounds like a good business plan to me. I mean, there's a whole bunch of people that have done that. It's a, it's a great idea. I don't think there's a whole bunch of people in the Baltimore uh, area that do that. So he was doing fairly well. One small problem. He also thought he was a wine retailer. Yes. What's the small problem? He was uh, he would sell the wine that he was storing for people to other retailers. Yeah, I, I, and, uh, that's there's a problem there. I mean, I I, I just like I don't I. I would, Al and I were talking before we started here, and it's just like I I just cannot consciously. Say I was gonna do, I was gonna, I'm gonna store your valuable thing that you care about, and then turn yep. around and sell it, and I'm gonna take money from you to store it. That's I, the crazy. I just <laughs> I sold your stuff, but I'm still gonna take money from you. I mean, is this person just an out? I mean, is this a crook? This person was already a crook, was already a you know a thief, and just thought, hey, there's rich people here. They got this grape juice. This is a great idea. I'm gonna sell it. Did they think they were going to get these people's wine, sell it because they needed cash flow, and then replace it later? I I don't know. I, I, I were just... they schizophrenic? I'm a wine store. I'm a retailer. And I'm a wine. I don't know what I am, but I'm a, I'm everything to everybody. I mean, it's just like I don't I don't get it. Or is this just I don't know if this. I just like we can make a quick buck. I'm going to make a million dollars and I'm going to flee the country. <laughs> I, I don't, don't know if it's. A... I don't know if it's a coincidence or not, Bill. Uh, I don't know if it's a coincidence or you, if you'd call this irony. I'm not exactly sure which phrase to use, but the guy's name is, his last name is Holder. You can't write this stuff. Come on, man. You can't write this stuff. I don't know. Really? I, I, it sounds like an Elmore James Leonard, Leonard uh, novel just being written for you right here. <laughs> I, I, it almost makes you want to get on a plane and go and interview this guy. I mean, seriously, what did you, what I, and and, the, and he didn't have. He was selling wine. He didn't have a license to sell wine. I mean, it's yeah, it's, that's, nothing it's, was legitimate. Nothing, not, not nothing. I mean, and how did he convince people to give him their wine to store? I mean, he had to be maybe a con man. You know, just really good well, at the con. There's a couple of things that are interesting on in this this article, and I mean, we're talking. I mean, this whole so thing hard. is not believable. This is like somebody wrote this thing because they needed some to fill up some space in a newspaper. I mean, seriously, it's like not believable. Who would get? Who? Why would you give this guy your wine? And what did he think? People, oh, these people, they buy this wine, they never drink it, they'll never miss it. So I'm looking for that five hundred dollar bottle of Rothschild Bordeaux that I have. Um, anyway, sorry, you keep trying to say something. It wasn't a few people, man. I mean, we're talking. It's, it's true. That's several true. million dollars worth of wine. So he was doing a pretty good business. Um, 
one of the things that's really interesting for me is they talk about the agreement. I guess he he said, ah, oh, yeah, you caught me. Okay. And he, and he admitted that he, uh, that he did the deed. Um, but they're still, you know, you know, with all of these things, they're not really sure what the numbers are because, you know, the, it's, the stuff's just not adding up. Right. So <laughs> he's, I'm, I can't believe it either. I'm skipping all over the place. But the, the guy is, amazingly enough to me, he's not in jail. He's out on bail, which I think is just really, really amazing. Uh, Mr. Holder, just want to remind you, Mr. Holder. <laughs> Mr. Holder. From, I mean, I guess from, seriously, think about this. Mr. What's his, I don't even know his first name. William Holder. From Billy, Safe, I like going Billy. Yeah, Billy Holder from Safe Harbor Storage. Oh, wine storage company really I, that is it's amazing man yeah. it's amazing but you know we we talked uh years ago about our friend and he's mentioned in here also uh, john fox and you know john fox had a, a much more uh, sophisticated scheme going on you know his was more along the lines of a ponzi scheme this guy was just like outright just stealing and not even like worrying about the consequences like you said later i mean how are you not going to get caught I, well, this, so this is caught. Well, this is my like. Is this person just really not not very like didn't think it through, or yeah, or was there just I, and like a million five? It's not that much money. It's not, and 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 on the agreement. So he signs this agreement. And says, "Okay, I admit to stealing. Um, I admit to to stealing. Um, I guess the initial claim was two point three million dollars worth of wine. In the plea agreement." Um, that figure is crossed out in the plea agreement, and they wrote in like another number in pen. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, it's like it's almost like I, I just wow. what? Who does that? Yeah. So, uh, so that's uh, that's so you got to share your product and make sure you're dealing with a reputable person. But this has happened before. We had the guy over in. Um, the guy over in um, yeah, uh, Vallejo. Yeah. Yeah. They, they did the same thing. He was, uh, I mean, he's in jail right now. He's still in jail, actually. And um, to cover up his tracks, he actually torched the building. Remember that? These <laughs> <laughs> guys, man. Wow. And it's not like he's a young person. He's been around for a while. He's 54, man. He should know better. <laughs> but he's only going to, he only got 18. What's it? Eighteen months, I think. Yeah, it's some ridiculous amount of time. So I don't know if he's like somebody, a judge's kid or something. I mean, how do you steal from people? Steal that, you know? Do that type of, you know? And and he agrees to pay back this. How is he going to pay it back? Is he going to start another wine storage business? Or I mean, he's going to he's going to hold <laughs> he's going to store um, high end cars now. I don't. I tell you. I tell you. I don't it's, know. Uh, you know, you it does wonder the the uh, the sentencing. I mean, he gets sentenced in July. Hopefully, we'll find what it will come to light at what his sentence is. But there could be some Robin Hood going on here, where you know it's like, hey, really, bunch of rich people complaining about some wine that got really, you know. And the judge is like, wow, you were too stupid to check on your wine, and now you're complaining this guy sold it? 
and you're kind of a not nice person anyway, I don't really care. No, no one really got hurt here, you know, except the yeah. rich, except the rich people, and I really don't care. Do you know what I mean? I'm not advocate. I'm not um, in any way, shape, or form condoning the behavior, but I can understand where it's like, man, it's a bunch of rich people and their wine. I, you know, good for you, well, dude. Good for you, dude. Yeah. Taking a million five. <laughs> well, I know there's some. There were probably, obviously, I don't know. You know, don't maybe know. not rich people, but definitely people that had some extra. You know, they had some extra income. Like the 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 two brothers that they quote in the article, they said, you know, <laughs> that he actually replaced some of their bottles that they had bought with like cheap bottles of wine. So he was even trying to, you know, maybe he was thinking long term and trying to keep it going a bit longer. But this this guy was on the he was on the Reese um, list for uh, wine. Uh, he had a bunch of Bordeaux from two thousand three to two thousand five. He had a lot of Pagot. He had some Clos de Pop, some Barolos, and um, his quote was: "He says, unfortunately, we have young families and we're not in a position to replace the wine. So you know, he just said we're officially out of the wine collecting business. They're out. So I mean, they're not. They're not." They're not big whales. Those two guys weren't even. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, to clarify my statement, I only mean rich people in the context of people perceive that they're rich because they're interested in in expensive luxury goods. Um, Got you. Got you. That you know the same. The same could be said for somebody who's got a you know who's out buying uh, uh, Hermes or uh, um, uh, Dolce and Gabbana, basically buying designer label dresses, and they have a collection of them. Duly you know, noted. Yeah. 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 Um, it will be very interesting to see. Uh, who was the guy? I can't remember the guy's name down in L.A. Who was the? Uh, um, he was another wine fraudster, but he was the guy that was um, basically trying to um, create. He was the guy that was clum- He was faking the wines, so he was taking other wines, mixing them together. Um, I can't remember that guy's name. Vanity Fair did a big article on him. Oh, Rudy, Rudy yeah. Carowin. Yeah. yeah, like if Holder yeah, and Carowin got together, it'd be ugly because you know they could just replace. Well, they'd replace the wine. Just think about it. Think about it. They, I mean, if you've never had a high-end Bordeaux and you bought one and you stored it, you had no idea what it would taste like. Yeah, you would. It'd be, and if you were uh, inex- hard, yeah. and if you were inexperienced wine drinker, you would think it tastes like crap. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, not a true. Russian it's River true. Pinot coming out fruit <laughs> forward. No, it's like, oh my God, what is this? Wine's bad. That's what people would think. It's off. If you've never, yeah, had yeah, it. you got it. You got a good point there. If you've never I had agree. it, I mean, I, it, I think we've all probably. I, I think as an experience, it's seminal as you taste wine, where you have wine that people are telling you this is awesome, and the first time you try it, and you have no knowledge, you're like. These people are insane. This tastes like dirt and some kind of just bad water. Um, <laughs> bad water. You know what I mean? It, it um, it's funny. So, um, well, you know that whole. We should probably uh, we should probably jump off that topic. I don't know if you want to. Um, no, you want to take off. Here. I got nothing else to it's say. It's crazy. Let's take off, and we could talk about um, uh, Robert Parker. Speaking of. Um, Retired, getting out, getting out. Um, it, uh, I know a handful of small winemakers, and every one of them 
care about I, I would say it's at their one of their top three priorities is to get a high score from Parker and until they do that they don't care about much else um, Parker commanded he was a monopoly in and of himself in terms of taste making yeah he was a man wouldn't wouldn't uh, wouldn't hurt to get his praise he could make or break a winery yes for sure so, uh, but he's been a, a he's been writing for what forty years. Yeah, and um, actually, he sold. Let's see, I have to go back here. Does it say did Singapore you, uh, did you company? Didn't he sell his? He sold his uh, brand in twenty uh, twelve. Twelve is yeah. that right? Yeah, um, he sold Wine Advocate in twenty twelve to Singapore, uh, an investment group in Singapore. There we go. There we yeah. go. So he's since he's done that, since he actually sold that um, his his name and his brand. He's really been kind of a, a figurehead, I think. And he's been, you know, he's been going around to events and he shows up and, you know, I, I think he might have had some health problems also um, uh, recently. So um, this picture, um, I think I sent you the one from Venography. You did. That's not a very flattering photo of him. But, um, yeah, he's uh, he's his palette is is uh, mainly uh, Bordeaux, California. I mean, he blasted on the scene. I remember back in 1982, and uh, he really um, was responsible for uh, speaking all of the great praise for the 82 Bordeaux that came out. And uh, ever since then, man, it's been a skyrocket. But uh, wherever you go, I mean, if you're in a site or if you're in a store, you'll see his scores. It'll say Robert Parker. You know, 92, Robert Parker, blah, blah. You know, even though he hasn't actually been um, tasting for, you know, tasting and actually writing for a number of years. So he's been out of it, but this is this makes it official. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't think there's ever going to really be anybody uh, like him anymore because that was a different time anyway. So, um, but... Uh, you also have to remember that he... Um rose to prominence in an era where the ability to control the message was uh, much greater by a publisher than it is today. Yes. Um, it was very, you know, distribution of information used to cost a lot of money. This is all pre-internet. You know, you had to print stuff. You had to mail it out. Um, you know, when in, in 92, you know, he's writing a newsletter probably that got mailed to people. Um, yes. and that, you know, you had, I, you probably had to buy it, you know, and he, his palate and his ability to write about what he was experiencing was, was superb. Um, you know, and clearly had a way to reach a lot of people. And he also made some, um, he had some ability to do the digital transition. So was able when the internet came in the late, you know, around sort of, you know, after 95, really, um, was able to sort of make it. But, you know, 10 years on, it's just really hard, um, I think, for any. Our, our whole idea of how we used to get information where publishers would act, publishers would hire editors, editors would call through the information, they would tell you what to drink, what to eat, what to think. They would publish this in various vehicles. It would cost a little bit of money to get them. Newspapers, newsletters, books. Um, and today, all of that distribution is free. Anybody can print. Anybody can put stuff out there. Um, we will still pay for good editorial, but we really don't want to pay a lot of money. 
so we're in a very weird time in terms of information distribution, at least from what I can see. And um, I spend a little bit of this in my business um, that I do every day. So it, it's a really, you know, I, I, it will be really interesting to see how this it evolves in terms of being able somebody control the message right now the message is still controlled by advertisers and that's one of the things that he wasn't subjected to because he had that newsletter business so he didn't get influenced by a big wine brand and we could talk about gallo in a minute and what they're doing but gallo is a big company gallo today can go and buy um internet traffic so they can direct traffic to their sites they could buy internet yep. traffic to a publisher because a publisher will take money for it so they have a way to control the message with money versus just some independent so it's just going to be interesting to see how it shakes out um as a force in terms of what to drink and what's great you know i think uh, having somebody like parker who again garners that kind of attention actually helps people rather than take away from it um i've never heard robert parker say you know um the way that he did his critique and the way that he wrote about it never detracted from somebody else saying hey your opinion was bad this is wrong this wine's bad did um I'm, i may not be making sense here but he was a very independent critic and you know he didn't talk about other critics he just talked about his experience i thought he was great in that respect too yeah and he was it was uh it was really a uh nothing but the facts type of newsletter I mean, up until I mean, the That's last time I read, say. yeah, the, the last time I read a, a wine advocate was probably, you know, five or six years ago. But uh, there was no advertising in it. It's just all about the wine. It's about the vintages. Yeah, and, um, and the, the influence wasn't there either. I didn't see the influence. I mean, he had access to everybody, and even as he got more and more access, I didn't see that. Um, I didn't see I, I, it. It appeared that he was independent in that respect. His editorial voice. Yeah, and his his scoring scale, the you know the ninety six to a hundred, for for you know the top, the creme de la creme, the ninety to ninety five for outstanding, the eighty to eighty nine, you know was like uh, you know average to above average, and then I, I don't think I've ever seen any wines. I know it went down to like into the 50s for the scale i don't think i've ever seen it in the 50s but um people adhere to that 100 point scoring scale uh fairly rigidly and uh you see other critics use his wine scoring scale yeah which and, and they have they have for years and years so i mean it's it's, it's part of the uh it's it's part of the wine language so to speak and, and he created that so there's a lot to be said for that. He also had a penchant for um, really enjoying high-powered, super uber-rich, uh, highly flavored, uh, high-alcohol wines. And this kind of goes back to your reference of uh, winemakers always wanted to get him to uh, endorse their products. And, you know, that was like that was like the holy grail, trying to get a wine with uh, a, 100, a Parker 100-point endorsement. Yeah, you wanted that 96 or higher, at, yeah. you know. Basically, ninety-eight and above. I mean, if you got a, if you got a, well, I mean, if you think about that, so you're new to that, you're you're going wine tasting. Where do I go? And I don't want to go to big brand wines. Never heard of these places in this weird place called Sonoma. But I do know this Robert Parker guy. I've had some of the wines that he's recommended. They've all been outstanding, every one of them. 
And so I'm going to go on my tour based on his point scale. And you won't be disappointed. So the winemakers definitely want to get there because that's how you get business if you're a small person. Yeah. So at the end of the day. And Parker, I I would argue that Parker did a really good job separating. He was an independent editorial voice on wine and not corrupted by people throwing money at him. Um, it, and, and there are, I'm sure people will have stories that say that that's not true. But I would say over the body of his work, you're probably going to find that he, you know, he was a good critic. And good critic meaning that he was as independent as he could be. Um, he certainly seemed to be that way in terms of his writing. And yeah, he commanded a disproportionate attention. But there are plenty of people that do that today. We see those examples all the time. Um, I have one last name for you uh, as an example, Kardashian. All right. What do the Kardashians? What do the Kardashians do? They they just live their lives and and be yeah. record. They're tastemakers. Um, they're cool. They're cool. You know what I mean? Um, I'll never be that cool. No, I will not be, and nor do I want to be on camera twenty four seven. I'd probably be in jail. <laughs> but you know who's cool? You know who's cool? And I don't know if he actually intended to be cool like this, but Edouard Bajol. Yes. Master of Wine, that dude is cool. Indeed, indeed. But he's got, you know. Ed- Edward is, uh, he's the uh, Ernest and Julio Gallo's regional fine wine manager. And uh, this is a, a little article about uh, Gallo's uh, premium business and how they're um, they're doing really well. It's by Lucy Shaw. It's in the, um, came out of the drinks business, um, uh, E. Uh, e magazine and uh, Eduardo is looking rather dapper there. Um, Bill, as, as you mentioned earlier, I think his watch costs more than one of my cars. Yeah. I'm. Um, so he, uh, the picture that we're referring to is somebody who is making the appearance of their, you know, like this casual grape farmer. But as you study, as you study the picture, you start to learn that they're in custom-made clothing with French cuffs and like designer denim, and I can only imagine how many hundreds of dollars of footwear on his feet that we can't see. Um, but it's just—it's like okay, this is ridiculous. As he's drinking his, you know, glass of wine out of the five hundred dollar bottle of wine that he just uncorked. But the articles that the articles revealing and interesting to me for a couple of reasons so one the very last sentence in the inner article talks about the percentage of wine that gallo is responsible for in california um it's 40 percent it's like you know 10 percent less than half the market they own what twenty four thousand acres of land i think gallo's big gallo's massive i think Um, they're big but it is it is, so if you think about that number, they forty percent of the market, and thirty percent of their turnover. So thirty percent of that forty is gro- and it's growing. Um, so thirty percent of the overall forty percent of their market share um, is high in wine. That's pretty amazing. It just kind of speaks to the wealth um, uh, around. Now Gallo has a. Gallo, Gallo has a very um, a defined classification in terms of uh, premium wine. So they they call they start premium wine. I think at 
$12? What is their premium category? It's $10. Yeah, so it's over 10. So over 10 it's premium. Super premium um, is above 15 and ultra premium is is 20 to 30. Yeah, and when I think of the premium, I'm thinking 20 to 30. You know, I don't, you know, um, I guess people are used to paying 10 bucks for a bottle of wine. I have no idea. Um, but the uh, massive company, and interesting in the fact that the, their, their uh, quote-unquote, you know, higher-end premium brands are garnering a bigger share of their actual sales and turnover. Here's some of the um, here's some of the brands uh, you might recognize a few of these brands. These are some of the brands that Gallo's responsible for. So next time you walk into your local market, uh, you know you'll know. Um, Barefoot Sellers, Dark Horse, Gallo Family Vineyards, of course. Um, uh, Chateau Souverain, Columbia Winery. Echo Damani, Edna Valley Vineyards, Jay Vineyards and Winery. Jay, really? I didn't know they owned Jay. Yeah, they bought Jay about, uh, I want to say like seven, eight years ago. Wow. Uh, Louis M. Martini, McMurray Estate Vineyards, Mirasu, Oren Swift, Talbot they, Vineyards. They just bought that, right? Didn't they Oren just Swift? Didn't they Recently, just buy the yeah. prisoner? And I mean, it's an Orange Swift. People know that wine. That's a really, it's another high volume production wine that that is very interesting, especially to people who are new um, to wine. Yeah, they've owned William Hill Estates for a long time. Um, but but what's really interesting to me is, and a lot of people don't know this, is that um, Gallo, um, they're they're like high end um, importers. So when you go uh, to the store, they also import, you know, they got these fingers in Alamos Brands, uh, Los Rocos, uh, Martin Kodash, um, Allegrini, uh, German, Piropan. Um, wow. Otto Roddy. Wow. That's, wow. <laughs> they're, they're uh, you know, they're, they're heavy players in that. Wow. Not just making the stuff. Yeah, but it's. Actual it, moving it around. Yeah, distribution. Distribution. distribution part yeah so that's that's where they're um they're, they're pretty big and that's what it's all about because let's face it you can make the wine all you want but if you can't get it to market yeah it doesn't matter you know? well and even you know you got to go one step further it's actually getting it on the shelf yeah yeah so and these guys yeah. yeah and so these guys have been you know they already had the relationships in the supermarket so now i can expand i'm, I'm already moving a lot of stuff in the market that's really good because the market likes that because they got turnover and they're making money and now I can start putting higher and higher end wines in um, and if I've got the information infrastructure in the background to manage it all and watch it I can dial in to a supermarket higher increasingly higher end price points and just sort of inch that up and yep. the consumers, the consumers will just buy it. It's like, hey, here's another wine. Oh, I like that wine. Oh, it's a dollar more. I don't care. Next thing you yeah. know, that ten dollar premium category is now a twelve dollar premium category. Yeah, very smart. Very smart. 
Um, you know, in this this article, halfway through it, I mean, it, it's pretty short, but there's a there's a lot. It's of, a really good article because of that. In short, there's a, there's a lot of packed, packed full between of the lines here. Yep. <laughs> so um, one of the things that uh, one of the points that Ed- Edward is making is he says that um, you know we've been trying to um, move up the premium channel as far as wine for a number of years now. And we, we, we found it difficult, he said. So he says, uh, he quote, I'll quote here, we tried to build the quality pyramid with the Gallo name in 2006, but it didn't work. As people think of big brands when they think of Gallo, the Gallo family didn't mind doing it differently. And he goes on to say, the name Gallo does not appear on most of our premium wine labels. And some of the premium team members don't even have the name Gallo on their business cards. So... He goes on a little bit further. Basically, what he's saying is because we're Gallo and our name is Gallo, it's hard for us to gain entry into the premium market, even though we own 40% of the market. It's like he's talking on both sides of his neck on this, right? Uh, Yeah, I mean, yes yes and no. (laughs) what What I derive from that is they just haven't figured it out yet. They haven't. Like that quality pyramid thing exists. They just haven't figured out how to get consumers there. They will. They will. I mean, when you go into us, I mean, I I don't know this for a fact, but I'll check next week. I bet you can buy the prisoner at uh, Safeway. Oh yeah, you can. I mean, one of these and, and one of the, no one, one knows that that's a Gallo wine. I know <laughs> that's well, but that's that's my point because and the it's grapes a forty dollar bottle. Yeah, and the grapes from the bottle. and the grapes from the prisoner may not come from Napa Valley anymore. They might start coming as they expand production from somewhere in the Central Valley, and no one will know. There's just just no telling. But he go, he he also says that he goes, hey, it can be difficult out in the field, and can take us longer to get an appointment with some people because we're Gallo. It's like, dude. You you're the one with the bat, man. You can't complain. I hear what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, you can, because it's a business part. So first of all, let's let's back up. These people are farmers. They're farmers. <laughs> Nothing is ever going. I've never met a farmer who's like everything's going well. My life is great. They're usually complaining how much money they're losing. You know, as I'm looking out over their millions of dollars for the property. How you know horrible everything is, or I'm seeing the hundred thousand dollar tractors drive by, and I'm like, well, okay, yep, life's horrible. Number All one, right. <laughs> you know, so like I get that, you know. Number two, you know, I want to be the hot girl at the prom, not the plain Jane. So Gallo's the plain Jane, and they really want to be the hot girl, and they're having a hard time doing that, wearing their plain Jane clothes, like. <laughs> We, I like, get it. I get it. All right, man. Yeah. And I just have to look at you in your, you know, $1,000 custom casual outfit to know where your head's at. Oh. That's funny people. That's funny people. But it is It's. It is interesting how, um, you know, a company like Gallo really wants to be a small boutique winery. That's where they, you know, they all desire back to that. Well, live in the dream. And so we have a good example of a couple live in the dream. Um, so it's, uh, uh, I can't remember. So it's from the Chronicle. And there were two people who were in the wine business for quite a while, Diane and Steve Lawrence. 
well, Diana uh, Luz and Steve Lawrence in the Napa or in the wine business, lived in Napa for a long time, wanted to start a winery, um, and they did. They bought a property in France. They bought seven acres of France, a house, a guest house, and uh, five acres of good wine. And it cost them less than 500 k In Napa, yeah. land's going for $7 million an acre. And so no, this is a really interesting article to me in that they this chateau that they bought, it's a literal chateau, is in Bordeaux. It's like in the Napa Valley of France. It's in the it's in the winemaking region that has the most expensive wines, the most expensive liquid in the world. I think they said in this article is great wine. Correct, correct. Yeah. Um, and their wine, their first year vintage from their wine, sells for six seventeen dollars in Berkeley. <laughs> you can go get it in Berkeley for seventeen bucks. Um. You're not going to find a state-grown Cabernet for anything less than 50. And so this is a really, uh, it's very interesting to me, this whole thing. And I'm, uh, I'm at a lot to pull up. The, I'm a little bit uh, bummed out here. I can't actually pull up the, the article because I think I've looked at the San Francisco Chronicle. I've reached my monthly article limit. Oh, sorry. Uh, Open How do I get around that, Bill? Uh, There's no way around it, I don't think. Yeah, you can open an incognito browser or a private browser. I thought this was a good story in terms of people. You know, we, we are lucky to live here in California, but at the same time, the cost of living is really high. Um, and there are, you know, places that, um, you know, especially if you – there are places to go other than California. I think we have it really great here. Um, but there are things further afield, uh, especially if you have um, a very clear idea about what you want to do that might be better places for, for you to be. And I think this is a good article that says that. Um, and they kind of found this is on a, on a whim, it sounds like. Uh, Lawrence was saying, you know, they, they were looking and he said we had an OS moment. We had to buy it. Yeah. That's so awesome. I think it's great. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, you're, you're not going to – I don't think there's any place in California where you could do that, even if you're out, like, in the hills in the Sierras or something. I don't, I don't see how you could possibly even do that. There's no way. Not for uh, – I, I, I will tell you, yeah, you're not getting 10 acres, 7 to 10 acres of land uh, – a house, a guest house, and a winemaking facility for under 5K anywhere in California. Nowhere. No yeah. way. No way. Maybe somewhere hour, an hour, um, an hour in some direction around Lodi. Maybe. Um, but I, uh, this place sounds like it was ready to move in and use. I don't know that that's going to be true anywhere. I'm not sure you can do that anywhere on the West Coast. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. Maybe it might be a little. It, it, maybe if you were somewhere in Oregon. Uh, I don't. Th no? Not in a winemaking region. I don't think yeah. so. I, I just don't think so. I and I, it, it's sort of. I mean, that five hundred K number is almost unbelievable. Um, it really is. It, it based on what they said is there. I mean, if it's true, they have a guest house, and I, you know, what is it? It says they have a winery. I don't know what that. I don't know what that means. 
well, it's probably not on par with like a, a proper winery here. I mean, it's probably like concrete tanks, and you know, it's, I mean, it's probably pretty. Yeah, but that's pretty I would imagine, but it works. But they can make their they can make their wine, and they're making it, and they're that's selling what, it. So that, I mean, yeah, that's my point. My point is, is that it's not um, impacting their ability to generate cash. Um, I. Um, and if there is this much arbitrage in between Napa and and Bordeaux, I mean that's really interesting. <laughs> um, wow, could be a trend. Could be some people going that way. Could be a trend, and it's probably like you said, that's a pretty uh, that's a ritzy zip code Bordeaux, the Bordeaux area. I mean, just think of what you could do if you went maybe to the southern part of France or maybe someplace in um, another European country. Uh, another a, a different wine growing region that's you know not as um, noteworthy. You could probably do even better. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So yeah, for sure. How do you think of places like um, you know Croatia or Hungary? Um, you know, sort of just further, you know, further east of there. It. Uh, yeah, and the pictures from this place are like. <laughs> I mean, it looks like a French chateau. <laughs> Yeah, those are, those are I, I mean it's like it's stuff. like somebody drew a French chateau. I mean it's just like what this is like what? And, I, and can they even I don't know, can they even own land? Um who knows how all that works. Good story. Yeah, it was a good story. I like this good story. Um you want to talk a little real quickly about the uh Phylloxera outbreak over in um we in Australia? Yeah, we should. So um, I see articles like this, and I'm like, eh. And then I'm like, oh well, you better be thinking about that in terms of the how connected we are. Um, but um, they um, they've got an uh, an outbreak of this. Well, we should probably say what phylloxera is first. It's a bug. Yeah, it's a and it's it, a bug that eats. It literally uh, eats the roots of the grapevine. And then the grapevine, it, it feasts on the, the bottom portion the under the, what's in the earth. And um, the vines, eventually, they, they produce less and less, and then eventually they die. And um, the, the, the vector for these is any animal or anything that walks on the earth, you know, can pick them up and move them from one plot of land to another. So it's really, really easy for it to spread. And that's what their that's what their big worry is because right now it's in Yarrow Valley, uh, which is uh, you know they're saying they're they're admitting that it's probably been there for five or six years and now it's just getting to the point where they just they, they can't ignore it anymore and this is this is really serious. Um, this happened. I'll, I'll say um, just the background on uh, phylloxera. There was a big phylloxera outbreak in Europe. Um, back in the in the mid to late 1800s, and it was exactly uh, referencing what Bill uh, said early on, and he said that you know, well, this is not that big of a deal, but maybe we should pay attention because it could affect us. And this is exactly what happened: is somebody probably brought some um, vines from the states, i.e., United States, and took them over to Europe, and these vines were infected with the phylloxera. Uh, bugs and then it just spread like wildfire um, throughout Europe and uh, they had no idea how to control it 
or what to do. And it just literally wiped out. It almost killed the wine industry in Europe during that time. So what happened was um, they figured out the best way to deal with it was to use rootstock from the United States, American rootstock, uh, because it's not affected by this bug. I guess they don't like to eat it for whatever reason. So what they did was they plant the rootstock, the American rootstock in the ground, and they put um, they put the different budwood on top, and that's how they did it. And it, they had to actually literally replant most of Europe because uh, most of the European vineyards had to be re replanted during that time. So that's what these people in um, Yarra Valley in Australia are actually facing. One of the ways that they're able to combat it is by tearing out the old vineyard, vineyards that are affected, and replanting with American rootstock. And uh, that's, that's how they're able to slow it down. But at some point, they're all going to have to replant. And um, people in Napa Valley remember this because this happened in Napa Valley in the early 90s That's where Falachra hit our valley. And uh, there was a major replanting for the next decade as a result of that. That's, I was like, I thought Napa got hit by this thing um, not too many years so ago. So it, it's... It's really a it's and it's really devastating, quite a right? I mean, that's the other thing I remember. That's the other I remember hearing. It's it's it, it it's like worse than a fire. I mean, it's or like a fire in that it just devastates it. It's gone. Yeah, and you know the thing about um, growing vines is, you know, you don't get a crop that you can actually use and make wine out of for four or five years. That's right. So <laughs> I mean, replanting is a big deal. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a costly operation. You have to take care of those plants for five years, literally, before you even get something that you can even make wine with. So um, the replanting, and, and you're talking, it could be like literally millions of dollars for some of these big, uh, these big um, conglomerates that are down there. So, uh, boy, I, I just, uh, right now it's confined to this one area, and uh, they're doing all kinds of things. Um when the vineyard workers go into the vineyard, um, they have to, um, a lot of them are, ha they're having them put on suits. Um, they're wearing uh, special wear. They have to dip their feet in um, bleach. Uh, they go out and do their work, um, dip their feet in bleach again. And a lot of cases are just throwing away the stuff that they were wearing. I mean, it's, uh, it's very costly to, uh, to thwart it and to kind of slow it down, but it's coming. You know, this, it's just going to keep coming. It's not going to go away. And uh, there's one part in here where they're talking about the um, there was a vineyard they found that had it. They just abandoned the vineyard. Nobody ever went in there, and, and uh, it grew up and uh, they let the grass grow. And then they had a fire. And because they never took care of that vineyard area, it almost burned all the other properties around it down. So uh, farming ain't easy. How many no. times have we seen that, bro? More, more than enough. It, uh, oh, it's a good, it's a good thing. Um, it's, it, it's a very satisfying thing to do. Come on, if you ever had a garden, being able to stick something in the ground and then feed yourself with it, that's pretty cool. And then being able to stick something in the ground, make it, make it produce fruit and you can mash it up and make wine, even better. Yeah. 
I like so, it. So uh, the last, the last little bit on this, the last uh, quote on this article is: "There's no stopping what can't be stopped. No killing what can't be killed." Remember that phrase? <laughs> yes. That's from the Predator. Yes. Yeah. Know. Well, you know. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, I, you know, I hope they get this thing under control. It's, it's just, it's grim. Yeah, the, the only way to control it is to replant. So that's what it looks like they're going to be doing. So they're going to re, be replanting. Oh, that is for sure. Uh, shoot, Bill, we're running, we're running long, man. What? Uh, yeah, I think we're good. What, what do you At, do? Um, well, let's talk about, have you had anything to drink worthy of talking about recently? Yeah, I've had a few good things. Um you know, what I wanted to talk about uh, this time was uh, actually, can you see this? I cannot see you right now. Okay. Um, I'm having, um, We're having this some... is our house white. This is our house white here this week. What? It's what? rock wall. Rock wall? No, no. You ever heard of rock wall? Rock wall wine company? I want to say I have, but I don't, I'm not 100%. Rockwall is um, it's uh, in Alameda. It's on the old uh, naval base, the old uh, naval base in Alameda. Um, it was started by um, Ken Rosenblum, and I'm sure you're familiar with Rosenblum Cellars. I was like, of Rosenblum, Ken Rosenblum of Rosenblum Cellars. Yeah. So uh, Ken was uh, he was a former veterinarian. And I uh, loved animals, and uh, obviously he loved wine. He started a winery, um, shoot, back in the back in the eighties, and um, he was known as a Zen master. He uh, went around and found uh, all these old, uh, dilapidated uh, Zinfandel vineyards, and paid people to farm them. And he made a super uber rich, um, very powerful Zinfandel back in the day. And uh, he made a lot of different wines. I mean, he could be, you could, he'd make like 20 different types of Zimpendels. Um, he, he really uh, was up there with Ridge. Uh, it was uh, Rosenblum, Ridge, and uh, what was the other one? Um, um, Ravenswood. Those were the three, those were the big three back in the day. I think we talked about Ravenswood a couple of podcasts. Back. Yeah. But um, Ken sold his winery. This is, um, Back in the day, he sold Rosenblum Cellars in 2008 for um, $105 million. And he really wasn't thinking about selling the winery, but, you know, um, Diageo uh, that bought him just they came with this wheelbarrow of money. Just <laughs> yeah. said, hey, we got all this money. We want to buy your brand. And uh, so he sold out. And uh, he took the money and turned it around and started another winery. And even though he was supposed to be a rep for, I think, the next five years for um, Rosenblum and, you know, be their figurehead. I could still he started do that. A winery. Yeah, he started a winery called Rockwall, and he started it with his daughter, Shauna. Um, unfortunately, uh, and Ken was not that old. Um, he just passed away less than a year ago. Um, unfortunately, he went in for um, he went in for an elective knee surgery, and there had some complications as a result, and I uh, passed away. Oh, my God. That's just like. Yeah, it's uh, pretty sad. But um, so his daughter makes the wines, and uh, she's an art. She's an artist um, by uh, by training, 
And uh, she likes to say that wine is her new art, and she's been doing it for a number of years. The wine that I'm having is it's called the it's called um, Mama's Reserve. So it's in it's in uh, reference to her mother, and it's a um, it's a Rhone blend. It's a white wine. It's uh, 34% Viognier, 30 33% Roussan, and 33% uh, Marsan. And um, it's a really, really nice wine. But it comes from um, she puts she puts it together uh, almost like I'm doing a commercial, huh? Oh, that's good. <laughs> she puts she puts it together. Um, uh, she she um, ferments the wines uh, separately, um, and then she puts she um, does the blend. Um, but it's done in 50% uh, new oak barrels, French oak, and 50% um, neutral French oak. And I like to say, um, you know, our weather here has been, it's been less than the best. It's been pretty cool this last week, week and a half, unseasonably cool. And I really, you know, we wanted to drink some red wine, but it just really hasn't been. It hasn't been the weather. The the, the weather is is just kind of iffy. So this is a white wine that, that drinks like a red. And uh, so it's got some some really really big flavors. It's got nice golden color um, on the palate. It's it's fat. It's rich. It's creamy. Uh, it's medium bodied. On the nose, you're gonna get uh, pineapple, mango, papaya, uh, lots of oak. It's got a pretty good little dash of oak, and uh, also there's a little hint of uh, for me anyway of uh, like uh, orange um, orange rind, hmm. and. Um, it's it's got that tropical thing going on really really good. So you got the baking spice yep. also, and the cinnamon and ginger. It sounds delicious. And, yeah, and it's nice. It's nice and clean. It's not overly. It's like uh, it's 14.2 percent alcohol. Um, the vineyard composition. Uh, some of the some of the wine comes from um, uh, Livermore area, uh, and then uh, the um, the Roussan and the Marsan come from uh, Paso Robles. So it's a it's a really nice wine. It's kind of expensive, I thought. I went and looked on the site. It's forty bucks is what they listed for on the Boy. site. But um, I got it. Um, I guess I got a super discount. I got it for like seventeen bucks. And when I saw it, I thought, I look, I seventeen bucks. That's a great deal. I didn't realize it was uh, in the forty dollar range though. But all of those white rounds can be like that because there's not a bunch of the grapes grown. So the price goes up a little bit. But if you're not familiar with um, French uh, white rones and you want to try a California uh, version, uh, you'd probably be pretty happy with this. It could go with a lot of different things, and it's got some good heft to it. Sounds delicious. That's that's what I got. Um, I did have something else that's kind of interesting. I wish that you could try this, Bill. Awesome. I think I'll save a little bit for you. What it, it's called Banyul. Banyul. It's um, it's by Chaputier, and uh, it's a dessert wine. It's a dessert red um, oh. that's uh, made in uh, southern France. It's a Vin du Naturel. And uh, actually, we just opened it up last night, and we had just a little bit as a nightcap. So uh, it's, it's in a, a 500 milliliter bottle, so a little bit goes a long way. So this bottle will probably take us three or four days to finish. But my uh, my fun wine, we did have a little heat wave a couple weeks ago, yes. and uh, I picked up a, a Wilhelm Bergman um, Peaceport of Goldtropfen Cabinet, 
which is uh, my wife and I, I kid you not. This is <laughs> drinking like Kool-Aid, huh? A little Kool-Aid. We looked down like about 10 minutes later and like, what happened to the bottle, you uh, know? It's, it's, uh, just, yeah. it's, a, it's a perfect patio pounder, man. And uh, it's, uh, <laughs> that's a great patio pounder. You need to make a wine called patio pounder. It was, um, I think that's I picked great. it up on um, last bottle for, um, I don't I want to say probably like 10 bucks a bottle is what it was. And it's one of those bottles when you open it up and you drink and you taste it, you go, God dang it, I should have bought more. Yeah, this is <laughs> so good. This is so good. Yeah. So, I need um, more. But uh, so that's uh, but it's a 2017 piece port of gold trojan, and uh, uh, really um, I'll um, maybe I'll uh, make some notes on this. But it's a great. Uh, it's got that sour apple, uh, lime, um, uh, Jolly Rancher type thing going on, where you got the sweet and the sour with the wine. Just really, really great, and it also has that nice salinity. So perfect bottle for uh, when it gets hot, if it ever gets hot here. Oh yeah. What type of closer are you having over there? Um, I've had uh, all the usual suspects. I've recently got some new ones in. I have they're actually in the fridge. Probably gonna have one when I'm done here. Um, so I'll let you know um, about that. Okay. Um, in fact, I went to Bottle Barn yesterday and picked up some new ones. But uh, yeah, I don't have anything really new and interesting to report on the. Uh, beverage scene with regard to my own tastings hey speaking of uh, bottle barn you mentioned it if, um a tip for our, our listeners if you go on bottle barn you sign up they have um they have a club it's um uh, it's called um the barn burner and every once in a while they'll put something out last week they put out um a coletto i think it was a 2013 coletto cabernet from napa valley and it was, I want to say it was like 23 bucks. Uh, that is ridiculous. I highly recommend subscribing to Barn yeah. Burner. You will not. Yeah, yeah. You should, you should get on board with that because, and when they put out those, those wines, you got to jump on them right away. Because, yeah. I mean, you can't, you can't even wait like a couple of days. No, they will be because gone. They, usually they only have four or five cases and it just goes really, really quickly. So yeah. there's your tip. Tip of the day. All right, my friend. All right, well, thank you. It was always good. Well, uh, very good, very good. It was great. Uh, it was great talking wine. Um, as always, man, let's hope we get some good weather, dude. Yeah, we definitely need some good weather. It's been quite chilly here in Northern California and a rain, a rainy weekend. But um, drop us a note and tell us what it's like where you're at. So you can hit us up on the Twitters at Vino101Net. You can always email us at info at vino101.net. You can always leave us a comment at iTunes and, and or our blog at vino101.net. And cheers. Thanks for Cheers, listening. everybody. Bye.